You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien, brought to you by Joe. Hello and welcome to Unfiltered with me, James O'Brien. My guest this week is, is a man I do know, but not very well, and... I'm looking forward to finding out a lot more about him. Mark Steele is, of course, a journalist, comedian, Radio 4 stalwart, and also has his new show, Every Little Thing's Going to Be All Right, at the Edinburgh Fringe this year. It's at the Assembly Ballroom from the 2nd to the 12th of August. Also, he's adopted, and some of the stuff he's discovered about his biological family is is breathtaking, as you will know if you've listened to this series a lot. I, I'm adopted myself, so I'm quite looking forward to comparing notes on that, as well as all the obvious stuff involving comedy and politics. Mark Steele, hello. Hello, lovely to see you, James. It's lovely to see you, and, and it's hard to know where to begin, but we'll begin at the very, very beginning, because your, your origins, both sort of biological and non-biological, have formed the basis of one of your recent shows. Yeah. You, you, were, you were 10 days old when you were when you were adopted, I was adopted as well. I don't know if I've ever told you that. I know, I didn't know. No, similar. Twenty-eight days old. So, so I never, I, I never didn't know. Did you? No, I never didn't know. So, in fact, I said it in the show that I did about it. I said you sort of people expect there to be a big bit story. where, yeah, big story <laughs> of uh, being sat down when you're six. Yeah. Now then, Mark, <laughs> something very important to tell you you're special (laughs) you're not like the other boys and girls as mummies and dads have to keep them even if they hate the bastards because (laughs) you were chosen specially and and, now there was never that and bless me mum and dad for that you know I'm not 100% with everything they did but that top marks to them there was never a moment of that I always knew and there was a story a very simple story that my aunt as I came to know her, yeah. was someone who lived over in West London and she lived in a little flat with her husband, Uncle Arthur. And one day, the, the flat that was next to theirs, a new tenant moved in and it was this woman who was 19 and she was in a pickle and she was pregnant and my auntie Gwen got talking to her. She was a very talkative woman and she said, uh, what's the matter, love? Oh, I'm pregnant. I've run away from home. No one knows I'm here. My mum and dad know I'm here. Nothing. I don't know what I'm going to do. So my aunt Gwen said... Well, look, I'll tell you what, I've got a possible solution here, right? My brother and his wife, they live in a place in a little town in, in Kent called Swanley. They want to have kids and can't have kids. When you have the baby, why don't we just give it to them? Because <laughs> it was 1960, yeah. <laughs> and that was there wasn't forms and complicated paraphernalia. You probably had stuff. to do some. I mean. Probably not. It was a bit like getting rid of a fridge. Get rid of a fridge would be more complicated. Now, you can't just get rid of a fridge. You've got to fill in an That's online true. fridge disposal form from the waste disposal unit. There's an eight-year waiting list. But, uh, yeah, 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 it's just like, a, you know, not a footballer being transferred. Yeah, he's a bit, you know, he's, he's first. 33, we're going to, he's probably going down the league, go to Brentford. So I was sort of shuffled off to Swanley, and that's all I knew. And my auntie Gwen did sometimes say to me, Francis, yes. which is my natural mother's name, Gwen obviously knew, yeah, she never said much about whoever it was who was your father. She did say he was French. And I say in the show, so I would sort of, yeah. I would say to people as I was growing up, oh yeah, my natural father was French, and they'd say things, oh well, that like, that explains why you like cheese <laughs> and, uh, and books. Yeah. <laughs> Were you supremely secure? I mean, you can never know for sure because you, you you only live the life you live. You don't yeah, know. Yeah. But we, because I always think I was supremely secure, supremely. Yeah, right. People find it hard to believe. They think it must. Yeah, they must, do. 
Must have been oh, like a mark yeah, of Cain. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I bet really you were... Yeah. yeah. Well, that's the thing, is that then for years, don't you want to know? No. I'd be fascinated. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, maybe you would be, I don't know, but I'm not. <laughs> I had no interest until my own son was born, and then a bit, you know... I How thought, old were you then? Uh, 35. Because when my uh, my eldest was born, that, that for you as well, that's the first person you've ever met that you're biologically related to. Oh, God, yeah. Which is a bit of a... Isn't oh it? Oh my God, that's true. You only just realised this. This is <laughs> his son's now well oh into his twenties. Yeah. But, but my daughter loves that when I tell her when I remind her of that because it is. I mean, that's a remarkable observation that you've never because so few people are ever going to yeah. experience that. And I, I thought it would do that to me, but it didn't. So how, how did it? Oh right, right. It didn't, it didn't change much for me yet. No, it did for me. Because uh, I thought, I, well, not in the sense that I was desperate to find me mum, hmm. but because I thought, oh, my mum yeah. probably will remember me, won't she? Yeah. Uh, up until then, I'd thought, oh, if, even if I met her now, she'd go, yeah. oh, okay, but so long ago, dear, so much has happened, I've completely forgotten. But yes. of course, once you, know, you feel that thing uh, yeah, yourself, you, think, you, oh, realize. Yeah, you would, yeah, you know, very few people would ever sort of go. Didn't we used to have a son? <laughs> you do remember having kids. <laughs> and uh, uh, so then I tried to find her, but she wasn't easy to find. But it was an, uh, just a, it was an unselfish motivation then. You kind of wanted to, to, to address what you presumed she would be feeling rather than to yeah. fill any holes in your own heart or your own life. Yeah, I think so. I think so, yeah. Did, yeah. You, did you worry about what your mum and dad would think? No, well, my dad's long since gone, and my mum was sort of... My mum doesn't bother with these things. I mean, even when I eventually sort of did end up finding bits and pieces mm. and out and everything, she was like, oh, blimey. Really? Anyway, Supremely oh, relaxed. Yeah, yeah, and if I... I mean, if I'd said, oh, yeah, I've been out to somewhere, I felt... If I'd said... Well, she lived... It turned out she was living in Rimini, my natural oh, okay. mum. right. I mean, and if I'd gone out to meet her and come back, my mum would have probably just gone, well, what was the weather like, dear? <laughs> that was... <laughs> That's quite sweet. <laughs> so you she had a, I have a, I had a dinner bit of the show where I was saying my mum was a proper mum. My mum was a, an absolutely proper, old-fashioned mum. None of this walking in Thailand and smoking dope nonsense. <laughs> a proper old-fashioned One of the, and this is true, one of the first jokes I did when I did stand-up was about me mum. And it was a true story. I was watching the news one day and there was somewhere or other, wherever it had been at the time, Lebanon or something, civil war, thieves, blokes standing there... <laughs> And my mum went, oh, look, it's raining there as well. (laughs) (laughs) Proper mum. Love it. In fact, and also there was just at the very early days of the Corbyn business, Hmm. before people even thought he had a chance of winning the Labour leadership thing, but when he put himself down as a candidate, and there was a big rally in London. It was much bigger than anyone expected it to be. And I was asked to speak at it, which I always think, oh, am I doing it? But I was asked to speak, and, well, this was a sign of our, of, of the times, the last three speakers was Corbyn, then me. Mm. I think that happened now, <laughs> and then Russell Brand. Gosh, and <laughs> I was about to go on, and my phone rang. And I thought, oh God, I've got to get rid of this. I'm just about to go on, and I gave the phone to my wife, as it was at the time, and I sort of went on and come off. And afterwards, later on in the day, I said, "Oh, would my mum want?" And she said, "She said, where is he?" And I said, he's on stage, Mrs. Steele. He's on stage with Jeremy Corbyn and Russell Brand. <laughs> and she said, and your mum went, oh, well, we've been to Paynton. 
<laughs> Love it. <laughs> well, well, let's back up then. Let's not jump forward to when your boy was born and, and back up to home because from what you portray, what you paint there, you, you would have had no business having ambitions to be a comedian or to be political or anything like that. It, it sounds like home was quite stayed is the word I'm thinking yeah of. it was utterly and this isn't me mum and dad's fault it's an extraordinarily uncultured place and I really because I you know I do a show where I go around towns of Britain and I have to be merciless about them I can only yes. do that if I like them I can't bear anybody going oh that's a horrible place everyone there is horrible useless posh stupid chab anything I can't stand all that right. I think it's just not possible but the Swanley is the nearest of, it's not the people I dislike but there's something about a little town outside in Kent and it's it's not in a sort of Kent where you could identify it's not Canterbury yeah. or something like that. It's outside London. It's sort of, you go out, so you go at the edge of London, past your Eltons and Bromleys and all that, then through a bit of countryside, and then there's a small town, and it's and its purpose was boredom. It, like, you don't have to live in London in the 60s, it started. You don't have to live in London. We've built a new place now out here, and you don't have to be in somewhere where the things happen and people talk and stuff like that. Come here. There's nothing. And that was its purpose. And so when you're a, a kid, it was awful. One pub. And people are conscious. The people who live there are conscious. Because that proximity to London must be interesting because it makes you feel second class, even though you've yes, so chosen to be there. That's very true. So UK, UK country as well, isn't it? Or, it probably yeah. is. The BNP headquarters were there for a while. I don't yeah. know if they are. And I, honestly, I don't, wouldn't want to go, oh, so everyone in Swanley's a thief. And I go, That's not no, what of we're course. racist. Of course not. There are people who have resisted it and, and of course, so on. Of course. Like everywhere. But it, yeah, but it is a place where <laughs> it's not that The, the inner life was not priority. In no, Swanley, it's, in not, it's, not, it's not a great place of mind for it. Very few people have gone. Uh, I'm going to a yogic retreat in Swanley. So you've gone straight for the extreme. It wouldn't just be a yogic retreat. It would be a book club. You would struggle to find. From oh what you my say. god, a book club! Yeah. So when if did you, you, had, you set up a book club up there, the, what, the, you'd get your head kicked in. Well, what, at, when you did you realise it was boring? Up a book club in my town where <laughs> I live. Not How do you realise it was boring though? Because I, I, I grew up in Kidderminster, which is also a town that should be. On your list for the for the radio yeah, yeah, four yeah, show, yeah, actually, yeah. you should do the. Um, it's also a town that that, that that doesn't wear its treasures on its sleeve. But I, I didn't realise how boring it was until my sort of teens. Really, mm. I didn't realise at, at primary school age that, that I lived in a boring yeah. town. It was the only town I'd I ever hate known. to sort of top trumps anyone yeah. on this, oh, but Kidderminster. I mean, I, I know Kidderminster's got a cricket ground with Worcestershire play. It's got a sort of carpet history, isn't it? Or yeah, something. no, it is. Big, it's big got carpets. It got your doctor man that got elected and so on. So that. Yeah. Must You're have right. been at the end yeah, of, of the yeah, How do you know your uh, stuff, don't you? sort of. But that must have been as a result of a quite fervent sort of feeling and community and so on. And I don't know, but as Swanley, it's, it's. I mean, honestly, Joe, one pub in twenty five thousand people, nothing else, no cinema. When people go, oh, you, well, what sort of thing goes on at the theatre yeah. there? The theatre. It's not even. You a... might as well say what sort of thing goes on at the space station. But what would you do then when you were like thirteen and you wanted to go out with your mates? Where would you just go to the park? We'd just walk round. Round and circles, round circles. and round. Here's the thing. I'm, do you know what? I'm just remembering this. You Go say on. that. We used to sometimes walk to the other end of Swanley and we'd get a stone and see if we could kick it the whole way from one the, down the road, mile and a half, one end of Swanley to the other. 
When did you realise that, that? When did you realise that, 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 that there were alternatives on the horizon? Because you, you're so near London and so far yeah, away yeah, from it, yeah, spirit, yeah, spirit, yeah, geographically yeah, close, yeah. spiritually on a different planet. Yeah. When did you start? Kind of. When did you feel like you didn't fit in? Then when did you? Because presumably some people get on the conveyor belt in Swanley and never get off it again. Yeah, you, you, I think. Well, here is someone who I think should be not. I know, shouldn't be given a knight. It should be given a sainthood by yeah. the, you know, the Vatican. Mr. McDonald, this bloke, in about, I don't know, some point in the 1970s, aware of the sort of lack of anything to do in Swanley, he set up a, a table tennis club. He must have, he was a very good table tennis player and he got a load of tables from somewhere I know not where and he did a deal with the local vicar and in the hall there he set up maybe eight, nine, ten tables and immediately about a hundred kids went God. down to this thing. Something to do. Anything. And I'm sure if you, for some reason, if any historian happened to come across the statistics for table tennis players in England, they'd go, that's very odd. This place in Swanley provided a whole load of table tennis players in the mid-70s, but it would have been this this bloke. And I, so I went down there and I just played table tennis and I also played cricket. I never got coached or anything. I mean, I, I often think, oh, if I'd had all the right coaching as a young lad with batting and had sort of the facilities and stuff that more privileged kids get, I'd still have been shit. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but enthusiastic. Yeah. With a different accent. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, I was quite decent. I'm, I'm still all right at table tennis. And it's because, uh, and it's it was that, it was definitely that, that, that and there was loads of us. And there were three kids that went on to be really, really good. And that's the uh, spike. That's the statistical yeah, yeah. anomaly based yeah. on. So have you ever played with Howard Jacobson? I have. There you go. This is a Joe, uh, an unfiltered special, because I interviewed Howard Jacobson recently. It was about five episodes ago. Completely forgot to talk to him about table tennis. So oh. it suddenly occurred to me that you were both on The Independent at the same time. Yeah. Like, Simon Kellner, who was editor of The Independent at the time, had a, a sort of a, a barbecue of some sort around yeah. his house up in Oxfordshire, and he'd got into table tennis, and he decided to have a tournament. Seriously? And there, was, there was 16 people, That's which worked idea. out perfectly. Yeah. He organised this yeah, tournament, yeah. and I was in the opposite half to uh, Howard. So, uh, and I played Simon in the semi-final. He got so cross. He got so cross. Threw the bat down and everything. It was most entertaining. And so I played Howard in the final. There you go. And I thought, oh, Howard's getting on for 70. I know he's been Lancashire champion or whatever, but it'll be all right. He won't be used to the spins and everything. And he walloped me (laughs) from one end to the other. Because he is brilliant, apparently. Brilliant. That's an amazing little coincidence. Because I I, I didn't know that about you and the table tennis, but the fact that you not only had played each other, but ended up playing each other in the final of a... Yeah, I love that. I I mean, your love of sport then was established partly genuinely and partly because there was nothing else to do. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why it's really. There's something just it did always fascinate me uh, the sort of pursuit of being so good at something to no great end. Really, I mean, you know, even yeah, when it's, it's, it's an end in itself, isn't it? Yeah, really. yeah. I mean, right. even Usain Bolt, who you, you is you know, probably the most extraordinary sports person of the last twenty years, I suppose, in that he, he's gone way beyond sport. Yeah, you know? yeah, and. And I remember sort of, I went round to a mate's house to watch an athletics event and there was a homeless bloke there on the corner of the street just was wandering down, old Jamaican bloke. And he was going, what, where you go, what are you doing tonight? And I said, I'm going around to mate's house, we're going to watch the athletics, Usain Bolt. And he did the Usain Bolt arrow thing. Wow. And I thought, this old Jamaican homeless yeah. bloke identifies 
identifies with there's just a handful of people in history who have been sports people, I suppose, you know, Mohammed had boxers, Pacquiao, yeah. I suppose, in the Philippines and stuff, but a handful of people who just transcend yeah. everything and make people feel... Yeah, he has done, hasn't he? So enormous. Yeah. But even he is the fastest person in the world, but not to, you know... Not to catch anybody. No, just, not to know. Well, no, I see what you mean. Just, no purpose. But it's but beautifully pointless. Yeah. yeah, beautifully pointless. That's kind of sport in a nutshell. So when did you start thinking about escaping then? Uh, well, I I think as soon... I, I mean, I left when I was 18. As right. soon as you I... left I, school at 15. I left again, school after at getting 15, involved yeah. in a cricket-based controversy. Yeah, yeah, I did get involved in a cricket-based controversy because there was a uh, there was a course that I was invited onto with a mate and the school wouldn't let us go. So we just went anyway. Yeah. And we were expelled. But now, here's a thing. Go it on. never occurred to me this, right? Why did they have... A cricket course, this was run by Kent Cricket Club. It was quite a posh thing. Why did they have a cricket course in the week that was during school time? Mm. It never occurred to me. I just thought that was when it was and that's it. And about 25 years later, I was talking to Francis Ween, the journalist, Mm. and he said that his stepson had been invited onto a cricket course, but what an outrage because it's in the week when the school time is on, because the public schools have got a week, their holidays are different. And he was living here in Essex. And Essex Cricket Club, it never occurred to them, I don't imagine, that the state school's kids wouldn't be able to go, because they are so fixated upon those kids. And it suddenly dawned on me that that's what had happened. Crikey. So put it in discrimination, and you didn't you didn't even yeah. realise. But you know, bless the public school system because it got me expelled from that rancid school. So thank God. So for what that. did you do afterwards? I just got a job. You know, I just got a series of, of pointless. But you were really young. You didn't do exams or anything like that. I or... did O levels. They allowed me to back in to do my O levels, and uh, I got four. And then, so do you mean that? Because I, I don't snigger, but I think you're a very clever man. Oh well, and. And you, at this point in your life, did presumably didn't think or didn't know you were. Cl- I mean, I'm, I'm just yeah, not getting any sense clever. of. I'm not. I'm not. I'm, I'm trying to work out where the where the chrysalis is. Where did because well, okay. <laughs> I, I saw, well, I, I left school. I went and do this sort of you know, stupid jobs yeah. and, and stuff. I don't, I don't know. I suppose in a way, I think it was a very easy time to become political in the sort of seventy six, seventy seven time. I mean, for a number of reasons that are all connected, it was a crisis in society. Yes. And I think, you know, I know that every every period you think there's a crisis. We certainly think there's one now. Yes, we'll but get on to that. But <laughs> there was one... It, it, but in the late 70s, I think what had happened is this. The post-war generation felt that they'd had a, there was an agreement. We won the war. I mean, the sort of thing George Orwell writes about. Yeah. The working person won the war as... Compensation for that, yeah. we're going to be looked after now and it's going to be all right. And yeah. every year things are going to get a little bit better. We're going to make a few bob. Our kids are going to be better off than us. Plus the new inventions that come in, which I think were more, had more of an impact on everyday life than the stuff that's happened recently. You know, televisions, yeah. telephone, cars, washing machines, radios, these things all coming into the house in the period between sort of, I suppose to most people's house between 58 and 68, say. Extraordinary. And it felt as if life was getting better, better, better. And then suddenly, and that was it now, it was never going to go away. It was never going to go back to how it was before. And then in the mid-70s, 
the world economy went down the toilet and the oil crisis and what have you, there was a million unemployed, which was shocking at the time. And suddenly, oh, no, it's all gone wrong. It's back to shit again. (laughs) And I think and various people had their answers. Of course, a number of people said it's the blacks, it's the whatever, you know. There's a more general sense, I think, from a lot of the older generation, the younger bloody generation, they don't care, they don't respect, we fought a war for them. You know, look at them, their long hair, they don't bloody care. I was out in a bloody desert rat or whatever it was in El Alamein, (laughs) and you bloody lying around there all day and that's so I think there was a there was a generational sort of conflict that I know people say oh there's always there's always that but there isn't there isn't the same I speak to my son he speaks to me we have certain things we disagree about yeah. as a generation's tattoos or whatever but generally there's a there's a sort of you know it'll go or my daughter will say oh dad you've got to listen to this yeah. you know and it'll be Drake or the latest J. Cole, Kendrick Lamar thing. And I'm, I may or may not like it, but it doesn't sound alien to me. For sure. But to my mum and dad, who were born in the 20s, it was just another world, whatever yeah. it was. And it wouldn't matter whether it was – it could be anything from the kinks. You could play anything from the kinks to Kendrick Lamar right. to my mum, and it's just, oh, my God, what's that – Awful racket. Yes. It could be Nirvana. You could say, Nirvana, yeah. this isn't modern. No, he there's no killed himself 25 years ago. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Doesn't my matter. God, thank doesn't God matter. for that. Amy. No, it's just, yeah, it it just, it just a, a, everything to them, there was this whole new world that was mystifying and the younger generation and what are they like? And, uh, and I think that's why, where punk came from. It was just, it wasn't thought out necessarily. It was just, bollocks to the lot of you and we're going to shock you whatever you know there we are safety pins everywhere yeah, what yeah. do you think of that and uh, and that was one way that it, it came out and it was a very violent society in the 70s in the late 70s really violent I mean you, you just sort of if you went out to the pub Chances were someone at some point had come over and smack you in the mouth. Really? I mean, society was at the school I was in. Yeah. And I'm not, it was just someone had come over on the way, you'd be going over to your maths lesson or whatever, and someone had just come up, still, poof, <laughs> And that was just, yeah. that Fun. was, and you just, you know, that, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's unthinkable for your, your son's generation. Well, it'd be, it'd be complete uproar. Of course it yeah. Um, but that just that just sort of went on. I found and this is all linked. You think this is all part of the the, the the breakdown of the post-war consensus, coupled with not knowing what the future would hold, coupled with a new generation of people who were angry but didn't really know why. Or were... it made it a very tumultuous time, yeah. and so I think it was a time when ideas were. Yeah, you know, you thought about right, what is going on with the world here? It's you can't just ignore it and hope it's going to poodle along. Whereas you could previously until until you, the you early could, to mid yeah, until yeah. Sort of, well, as I said, my dad wasn't political, but he was. They were like, "We're Labour. We vote yeah. Labour. That's what we do. Working person, yeah, yeah. you know, Harold Wilson. He's one of us." And then that's, um, but that no more, no more than that particularly. And so I began to think, you know, think of ideas and. And where are you getting your influences from? Because it doesn't sound like you're getting them at school. You weren't getting well, them at I think home. Punk, you weren't getting them in Swansea. Yeah. How did you discover punk? Well, well, punk people you. are sort of all talking about it and you hear about it. And then I remember getting the Clash album. I was a milkman at the time. Right. 
and every Friday when I got paid, I would drive over to this little record shop in Dartford and just buy a record every week and afford to buy a record. And I thought, oh, I've heard about this thing, The Clash, and I got that, and I got home and put this Clash record on. I couldn't understand anything they were saying, but I just knew, like, wow, yeah. this isn't apologising for being angry. You think, you think we were bloody cross before, older generation. Yeah. And uh, I thought, this is amazing. And I think that had a, an influence. I think it was all of those things. And I think also seeing the Labour Party as being a a conduit for sort of radical ideas, that wasn't really very likely in the late 70s because the Labour Party were the government. Mm. And it wasn't that I didn't understand any of the ideas about the IMF or anything like that particularly, but you just saw James Callaghan yeah. and Dennis Healy and Roy Jenkins and you thought, well... Like, I can't identify with him. I'm listening no. to Johnny Rotten and Joe Strummer and Polly Styrene <laughs> and uh, the, the, the Venn diagram that no. between them and Roy Mason and Merlin yeah. Reese was really very, but very they're thin. your mum's world. Yeah, that was my mum's world, yeah. They all looked like they were sort of the sort of people that they're ran big. me dad's bowls club. Exactly that. So it, it's more to do with finding somewhere where you fit rather than the ideology or, or the politics drawing you into it. It's more about where you don't feel yeah, at yeah. home. Because I thought you might have been on some a sort of more uh, traditional journey. I, I, you put your father's knee or a teacher at school who turned you on to stuff, but you just bought some records that you liked, made you think about stuff. This brain that had been a little bit dormant, perhaps, during your, during your schooling yeah, suddenly yeah. S- sort of came to life. But at the time, you're still driving a milk float. Yeah, yeah, it was. And then I had a mate who said uh, there's going to be an anti-Nazi league march, and we went on that, and I bought a copy of... The Socialist Worker. Right. You know, I wouldn't be particularly kind about that publication anymore. But the thing that struck me, because what I had thought was, I thought, oh, like, this idea of socialism sounds brilliant, but Russia is socialist, yeah. and that's a terrible place. That's <laughs> utterly, clearly, unequivocally appalling. And they had a copy of the Morning Star in the local news agents, and I'd sort of bought a copy. And it was just all about the lies of the capitalist press and the yeah. stuff about how wonderful things were in Hungary and Russia and all that. And I thought, well, wouldn't we hear about it? Wouldn't there be people coming over going, what are you all doing living here? Come to Bulgaria. It's amazing. I just, you, look at you all working. Yeah, we spend Milk all day. Milk and honey, mate. Milk and yeah, honey. We spend all day sort of at the opera and, and playing in bands. You're mad. Yeah. Can you drive a milk float, you lunatic? The Milk's free in Poland. I thought, wouldn't it? I just thought it just doesn't make any any sense. In fact, I had a joke when I did the lectures series, which was the one thing we know, one thing anyone knows about communism is it clearly didn't go very well. If you had a party, if I remember this, if you had a party and the only way that you could keep people at the party was to build a 50-foot high wall around your house with barbed wire on it and snipers at the top, and even then some of the guests escaped in a hot air balloon... Yes. You wouldn't go, well, that was a successful <laughs> evening. And, uh, <laughs> it's, it's simple things, but yeah. And I, of course, you still think, I've worked it out. I, that we should have socialism, this idea where we, we make things communally and look after people who are sort of behind yeah. and so on. We should have that, whatever vague sort of way I, I imagine this. But 
Russia isn't socialist. And I thought I was the first person in the world to think this. And I bought a copy of this paper and it said, uh, we believe in socialism, but we don't think Russia is socialist. In fact, the little slogan was neither Washington nor Moscow, but socialism. Yes. And I thought, that's it. That's it. And... You know, and I think they did do a very good job on that front of sort of preserving the idea for people that you could be a socialist without supporting a bloke who, I mean, well, Lexi Sales, magnificent line. Uh, he says, I would say to me mum, because his, his mum was an absolute diehard Stalinist. Yeah. He, he, you know, he says, oh, I would say to me mum, you know, but what about all the terrible things that go on in the Soviet Union? And she go, Lexi, you can't make an omelette without murdering 40 million people. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Back to Mark in just a moment. But if you are enjoying Unfiltered, then you might like this. Hi, Russell Kane here, and I'm hosting a brand new podcast for Joe, Boys Don't Cry, where I get a bunch of men together and force them to talk about the things we never talk about. Body hair, body shape, why do girls only fancy bastards? All the things we worry about but never discuss. Oh, and I'll also have a girl helping me each week just to make sure we're not talking rubbish. So go to wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, wherever, and download Boys Don't Cry now. Cheers, Russell. Now, back to Mark Steele. So Socialist Worker brings out a, a new dawn, if you like. It opens your eyes to the fact that you're not alone. There are other people who think like yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, a, that's a huge thing, isn't it? it? You know, when age, people say, you know, oh, you're preaching to the converted. You yes. think, well, no, you're, you're not. Even if someone agrees with everything you say, there's one thing that they haven't necessarily agreed with, yeah. which is that there are other people who think like them. Yeah. Yeah. So when you get someone else, you know, like a band, you're sat there as a teenager somewhere, you know, I've got... One of my favourite records, I've got a compilation of Norwegian Scar, and there's a little bit in the sleeve notes by the guy who put this together about how he was a teenager in Norway in the yeah. 1960s listening to Bob Marley. Wow. And how it's, and I thought, yeah, you'd have been in this world yeah. think, thinking something, not sure what it was, and you heard that, and wow. There's, and yeah. of course, you know, Bob Marley will have had no idea that he was speaking to people in the suburbs of Oslo. It wouldn't have been his main demographic. <laughs> <laughs> but the fellow yeah, feeling, yeah, yeah. connection. It's, you it's feel there's of... a connection somehow. So you found your tribe. You found your tribe. Yeah, you found my tribe. And then suddenly I was... Uh, you were in a world then that was properly racist. Yes. I mean, I know I probably go too far the other way now because I sort of, you know, I, I hear people getting in a flat because someone said Eskimo instead of Inuit or yeah, sure. Red Indian instead of Native American. And I, there's a bit of me thinks, Phew, racism, I'll show you racism. <laughs> I mean, that was... It was... Utterly grotesque. Yes. No, just in everyday society, in the pubs, in the workplace, and any one of ten incidents in a normal day, if you were to say now, there would be, this is shocking, and yeah. everyone would be sacked. But at the time, it was just... And so to then find a group of people who weren't like that and who thought it was all right to be gay or something like that was just extraordinary and I come across you know there's this group of people called the left yeah they were nuts in other ways but and and when then did you start thinking that you could lead a different life be on a stage it's, it, this is the bit i don't get about you is is this leap that you took at around this point in your life to being a performer to being a political comedian yeah but i don't think i don't think i did though Joe. i think i think that like most comics you think well i'm going to I think I'll be a comic. But you haven't said anything, and we're halfway through the interview, you haven't said anything really that, that suggests that you thought you were funny as a kid. 
I think I just like, I, yeah, do you know what? I don't know because what I think when you're a kid, <laughs> when you want to be a comic, you think I want to be a comic. Yeah. And uh, When did you first have that thought? I probably when I was very young. I just right. like that you okay. drift. I mean, we're mad. We're not good no, people. Clearly. We're egomaniacs. Yeah. And you, I don't think many comics think, I'm funny. I think I'd like to bestow some of my mirth upon other people. They, that think, they I may want to stand like a stage being oh, adored. Yeah, yeah, right, that's okay. what you think. Yeah, but don't again, I haven't picked up. Else. It's nice to hear you say the words because I haven't picked up on that from you. So that, that, was, <laughs> that was there. Yeah, I mean, I did every now and again. When I was eight yeah. at the holiday camp yeah. that we were at in Devon somewhere, living in a caravan... I wrote a stupid little poem right. and went up and I learnt it and memorised it and went up at the talent contest in the week's thing and I was determined to win that bloody got thing. You. So you've you got know? that bug, you've yeah, got that yeah, hunger. Yeah. It wasn't so overriding that you, you we know... Shared you shared that, me and someone else shared that particular prize. You had to get it in that you got, you're still bitter. <laughs> it should have been, been me, it should have been me. So you've got that hunger, You, you know, but, but you're not, yeah. it, it, it's not keeping you awake at night, you're not uh, gnawing your pillow, dreaming. Mm. Yeah, maybe. Of, was it? You were. Maybe you sort of think, oh, I want to do something. Yeah, I'm, that's... I'm, I'm born for more than this, which yeah, is probably maybe, easy maybe. to think in Swanley. Yeah. So how did it happen the first time? And I don't want one of your stories about your dad running a car plant in Poland and you... <laughs> Because for people who don't understand what that's about, you get bored with the question of how you yeah, got yeah. into comedy. And yeah, it's not, so, I'm not asking you how you got into comedy. Just tell me about the very first time you had the microphone in front of you. Where were you and what happened? Uh, there, was a, there was a sort of circuit that was just developing very, very slowly. I moved up to a squat. I had a mate who moved to a squat in Crystal Palace. And so I thought, oh, I can leave Swanee. I'll get out. I was 18. And I went up there and, and it, was, oh, it was a right state. I mean, it was just people were an absolute total mess hilarious bonkers bonkers mess people out of it or I mean like, oh, I don't know it was just one one this was one example so knock at the door one day and I opened up there's a bloke absolutely just stoned out of his tree and he went oh man I said oh, what, you know, I don't know you know yeah. what is it he went have you got a wardrobe I said well like, he said can I borrow it I said, well, not, I've got all my stuff in it. I said, what do you want it for? He says, I, uh, I want to keep me owl in it. Now, this is the sort of thing <laughs> that used to... <laughs> There was only one. There was only one house in the road that had a bath, and I got in with the bloke, and he, he said, he said, yeah, Mark, come over, come over. And then I, so I went over two or three times, knocked on the door. He said, I'll tell you what, Mark, I'm not always here. Outside here, there's a little ledge, right? As I'll just put the key on there, pop in any time you like. Get the off off. It was brilliant. I was the cleanest person in the whole of these. There was three rows. They were all squats. People were an absolute state. But it used to, I mean, they were an absolute mess. There was another place that had a bath, but the bloke used to change his the oil in his motorbike. In the bath. So, so I used to, I used to go over there. It's gone on for six months. I couldn't be happy. I was going every day in the bath. And then one day I'm in there, and there's a knock on the bathroom door, and I went, hey, uh, "All right, it's Mark. What?" It's Mark. I'm just all with a tail. <laughs> uh, who? I said, Mark. I said, who's that? I said, Mark, Mark, come over here. Use the bath. What? I said, Chris. Chris said I could come in. He said, who's Chris? I said, Chris, what lives here? And then it, and then it went off and come back. He went, mate, fucking Chris moved out months ago, mate. <laughs> I've been going over every day. I never to kept the key in the same place. <laughs> I just go to this bloke's bath. <laughs> it was so, so I was living in this this road. Yes. 
Well, and I came across a poetry group. I said, these god-awful poems, but try to make them funny. And they, we sort of performed a little bit. We performed our little funny poems and stuff. First one I did was in Dulwich, where we did a show, the Dulwich Poetry Society. And I had this angry poem about being unemployed. I was unemployed by now because right. I was sort of I know, signing on and trying to work out how to become a performer. And there was these 12, about 12 of these people, the Dulwich Poetry Society in the back room of rather splendid boudoir. And I, and I thought, right, I'm going to do this angry poem. I'm, I don't remember anything about it except the last two lines. It was addressed at Thatcher. And the last two lines were, because of what I'd read, I'd rather you were dead. That's powerful. Yeah. And I thought, I'm going to finish this poem and either they will go, oh my, and they'll all be sick. Or they will go, the young man's right, and they'll all join the Sandinistas or something. <laughs> so I finished this poem, and it just went quiet, and then there was about five seconds, and then the pottest of these women, she leant across and she said, I think you did very well to remember all the words. <laughs> <laughs> so I was sort of in that poetry group. Yes. And then we... Um, slowly there was this new world starting up of comedy clubs. There were very, very few regular ones. The store, but you had to be good to get on there. But that was mostly music hall. Yeah. It wasn't it wasn't angry political comics at all. It so wasn't. were people still playing the spoons? Yeah, sort of. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they were doing a sort of satire on it a little right, bit, maybe. Yeah. They were slightly slightly more anarchic sure. and that. But it wasn't particular. We have jugglers, bus people like that. Yeah. And then there'd be a comic and people trying to work out how to do stuff. There was a place called the Earth Exchange in North London, where a vegetarian restaurant, where there was a hat passed around and you got a tenner and you got your dinner as well. So that was economically very did, sort did, did, of did, worthwhile. How did you judge yourself? Who did you judge yourself against? Because you, you, you need, as you've mentioned before, you, you need to have that slightly mad attitude to life and that slightly over developed ego in a way to do this kind of thing but you also I mean if you're really really crap at it you, you probably would have worked that out so when did you realise you were quite good obviously not not, not the night of the just Dulwich, have the Dulwich a really, Poetry no, Society no not that <laughs> I think you have to have a if you get laughs and yeah. then you think I can right think of that remember that I suppose it's like anything I suppose it's like if you're a car mechanic and you yeah. fix one engine and then you bugger up six more you think right but I, I clearly can do this I've got to work out what I did when I got it right. And there is, I mean, my son does stand up and loads yeah. of the other, when he was going to do it, loads of comics said to me the same thing. They said, you'll know Mark when he, if he's going to do it. Not when he goes down well. That's easy. Right. It's when he dies. When he dies, if he goes, bah, I'll be all right. I'm going to do it again tomorrow. That's when you know. Because now normal, sensible, rational, intelligent people yeah. would go out in front of an audience and people look at them and just and they go down awful and you're doing jokes and no one's laughing and it's just a disaster and there's not a comic in history who hasn't had many, many nights like that. And you have one of them nights and normal people would go, never, I'm not doing that again. That's again. absolutely <laughs> the most crucifying, awful thing. I'd rather be in Guantanamo Bay. Yes. But, uh, but the comic goes, yeah, sod that. 
I'll, I'll have to work out how to put that right. And so you do, as long as you get a few. Has he I'll had do, it? Has, he, has, has Elliot had yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, he definitely. He's, yeah, he's so he's the real it. deal then. Yeah, 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 definitely. But you do, you know, you sort of go, all oh, right, and it, it, we'll work it out, and it, you get a few laughs, and then you get, you have what, to do, it's like an addiction. You have to do more and more to end up doing two and a half hours in every yeah, night. Yeah, and, and at what point then? So we're, we're now in the sort of 83, 84. When did, and you yeah, started earning yeah, a decent yeah, living. When did you start earning a decent living? Probably in the, I mean, in the mid 80s, by then, you know, the sort of circuit was going quite... It'd still be mad. Yeah. It'd still be just ma- mayhem everywhere. And you'd turn up... And if you went outside London, you'd go to a gig and it'd be chaos. Right. You know, there'd just be absolute mayhem and chaos and there's no microphone or we've got heavy metal band playing <laughs> in the same room. Yeah. Or uh, stuff like that. Or you're going on after a lion tamer or something or, you know, just complete mayhem and you've got but all slowly the a structure was emerging but slowly a structure and Addison off the curb professionalised a lot of it and yeah. sort of you know you tell the venues they've got to have this and that and a microphone that's working and stuff because something you get there oh well we thought we could just shout it you know or whatever but bit by bit it got professional and then you thought oh right this is you're yeah. doing this properly And now. then you're on a curve, and the curve encompasses... I mean, you're writing... Ten years later, you're writing a column for The Garden, you're writing books. You're, yeah. You always kept the politics and the comedy g- 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 together. Yeah, sort of. I mean, I'd like to think that it's got to be funny, really, yeah. first of all. I don't... I sort of see people doing acts, and they're just angry, or they're, they're shouting something about some injustice. And I think... That's always a bit of me thinks, oh, but you haven't made it funny yeah or tried to make it funny and that's uh, but you've got a sense of mischief as well haven't oh, you you've that's, got that's, to have, that's yeah, got to be yeah. the crucial constituent i think yeah because it doesn't matter how serious the subject matter is if you've got a sense of mischief then yeah, you find the light think, in i'm it. gonna say the thing that's find the light in it, i'm everything. gonna say yeah. the thing that's really not meant to say <laughs> <laughs> oh that's got it all going and, I mean, it's, it's, and that's why now that is why now i think there's a problem with the the sort of liberal view that oh you can't say that or yes. comics shouldn't be allowed to say that that's not a subject to joke about and I think no that's that t- to make a joke about something doesn't mean that you don't care about it no. it's c- quite the opposite yes. who makes the most jokes about people in bloody terrible physical pain the nurses who are looking after them who do more than anybody to look up they're the people making the jokes about it more than anyone it's not because they don't care it's because they do and it's their way of of sort of Getting over that and expressing that, no. So, I I do find myself really recoiling These at days, that and, a little bit. Yeah, uh, the, the, the 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 hypersensitivity, I guess, and also people who can't really explain why they're offended, but they think that they are. I did get a lot of that. I know in what's going on, you wrote about disillusionment with with the Labour Party, with Tony Blair's Labour Party, sort of yeah. that came out t- ten, twelve years after. Blair got elected, and then in 2015, you, you weren't allowed to vote in the Labour leadership elections. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'm just sort of stressing that the, with you, the politics has never faded. It's, I mean, you're an incredibly political person, um, aren't you? Yeah, I suppose. I mean, you stood uh, for the for, in the London Assembly for the London Socialist yeah, Alliance. I found that I mean, difficult to be honest because yeah. it means you have to take it seriously. That, that's kind of what I'm really, moving towards. Really difficult because that's that, the opposite of funny. There's no mischief in the London Socialist Alliance. Well, there was, was but it? then it wouldn't get you anywhere, you right. know, because you'd okay. make... I mean, I'd sort of get up and do... I, I, the, the truth is, I mean, I did lots of speeches, in, and I loved it, because you'd sort of you'd do... You'd have to go around, and uh, there was somewhere you'd do a debate with the other candidates. Yeah. And 
that of course I'd think oh I've got lots of laughs there so that was good I'd probably like turn the one person who was going to vote in for me to not vote for me but not I didn't serious. care you know uh, and then uh, but then also you'd go and actually what is brilliant then is going around meeting lots of people and listening to them and all that and I can see why some politicians do really love that you know okay. the, the decent ones I don't yeah. think they're all charlatans at all I think that they were incredibly hard so and just the better they are the less likely we are to have heard of them I think that's yeah that's, that's I think that's right seems to I be think that's way. right I know sort of Caroline Lucas a bit and I yeah. think God, you are an extraordinarily tenacious woman and just, you know, she does the things on Question Time and people yeah. like that. And, you know, it's always incredibly impressive, I think. But also, just in Brighton, you know, she's just... Just getting on with like, it. Ten things a day she has to go and visit mm. and sort things out for people and all that. And she does clearly love all of that part of it as well. So... I mean, the mystery then, as the new show that you're taking to Edinburgh, every little thing's going to be all right. You, you've been at the forefront of, of leftish thinking and comedy for, for the best part of 40 years. You really buggered things up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm blaming your lot. I mean, what yeah. happened? You know, I've got, yeah. I'm a great, as you know, I'm, I'm a great admirer of you. I love Mark Thomas. I love Nick Revel. A lot of the older left-wing politicians that, that, that I got to know a few years ago and really felt in awe of. How do you make sense of what's happened? And I know this is partly what the new show is about. It's also about your private life because you've, you've broken up yeah. with your wife in, in, the, in the last few years and there's political and personal. Yeah. I, well, it, I think it's so magnificently unpredictable at the moment. Yeah. Not, in a, not entirely in a good way. <laughs> I mean, I've got a line of doing the show about, which I think is pretty, I thought of this line on that night, although I didn't, it didn't cheer me up no more, but on the, very much, but on the night Trump got elected, I just think these votes are going to keep coming and the most ridiculous thing. And at some point in the next couple of years, there's going to be a referendum on whether we should all have a red hot poker up the arse. <laughs> and all the opinion polls will say not one person thinks we should all have a red hot poker up the arse. And at two in the morning, Dimbleby will be going, what an extraordinary result. <laughs> Hereford, 84% say we should all have a red hot poker up the arse. What on earth do you make of that, Kenneth Clark? Well, the, let's face it, the Andy poker up the arse campaign was a total shambles. We're getting to end. And, that, and so... But you, you were referring to the 70s and the toxicity, the commonplace toxicity of the 70s. You must have felt it had gone forever. And now we're looking at some political developments, uh, you know, not just Trump's election, but Hungary, a degree of the far right on the rise here. I mean, it hasn't gone forever. No, no, no. I don't think it's ever gone forever. I mean, you know, sometimes people will say, I can't believe that we're still having to fight these battles when it was... Th and I'd sort of think, oh, well, come on. When you, Do you think yeah. 30 years ago when you won an argument, right, that's it, that's racism done. Yeah. Of course, you know, people's lives go wrong, and when they go wrong, they will blame people other than the people you're they should probably blame. less surprised by it than i am then because I, I was born in 1972 so i never really saw that the 80s were quite a nice decade for for yeah, you know, yeah. social progress and stuff i did think this stuff despite was despite it being the thatchers yeah i mean for a kid growing up in the midlands you're not that exposed yeah. to the to the to, to sort of privatization agenda and stuff like that in terms of the the bigotries and the ancient hatreds and prejudices i probably did think they'd gone forever yeah 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 i think well one of the sort of maybe the joys or whichever way you look at it, yeah. 
is that I, being brought up at my time, you were brought up, it was a very, very difficult time in terms of you know, the racism and so on I've, I've spoken about, which was unimaginable if you're sort of like 25 now. And I'm glad. I mean, I, I was talking to someone who's 20 who couldn't believe that, that it wasn't legal for gay people to be married. No. Now that's so recent, yeah. but oh, that is that, that's know, the that, sort of that, that blew his mind. You yeah, should look yeah. at the stuff when it became illegal to to rape your own wife. That was in the eighties. Yeah, 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 I mean, this yeah, stuff yeah, is yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, no, it's extraordinary. Yeah. That's brilliant. That that's yeah. unbelievable. And uh, and so that you know that is all all absolutely marvellous. But. We were used to being defeated, basically. Then right. you know, Margaret Thatcher come in. It definitely affects your your way of life, and so. But one of the good things about that is, I think, no, I'm. I can appreciate every little tiny. You know, if I go into a place and there's a couple of people there, and there, uh, there's a couple of people in the neighbourhood, and they're, I don't know, they're supporting sort of radical idea, or they're supporting yeah. anti-racist ideas, or something. I think, God, that's brilliant. You know, you're gutsy people. There are, and I find that that's everywhere in every in the worst estate in the worst bit of Britain, where there's bloody crack dealers and the BMP and everything. There will be gutsy, gutsy people who are standing up for. Gay rights and you know, trying to trying make to someone a, else's life better. Trying not, to make not, someone, yeah. yeah. There, there'll be someone who's trying. You, know, you talk to someone who does, who's in a trade union now or something, and there'll be every night they'll be up till one at the morning looking at papers and stuff to work out how they can, I don't know, get some poor woman who's the cleaner who's been sacked or something and get her a job back and stuff. This is going on all over the place, and I'm, I'm immensely sort of encouraged. Encouraged by, by it. is that by why that. To, to coin the title of the new show is that why every little thing's going to be all right. Because they'll always be I think good partly, people. But doing also good. the Corbyn, you no know, Corbyn, whatever you know, and there's all sorts of God knows where it's going. But that is extraordinary that someone at a time when there's no great social movement from below, that someone who's stood for all of those things, who was written off as being someone who was just, oh, no one's ever going to vote for him. Yeah. We learnt that in the 80s. He's, yeah. he's in yeah. Hamas and the IRA or something, and he doesn't sing the national anthem. No one's going to vote for him. And then last year, 40% of the country did, or 30 or whatever it was. That is amazing. Think it went. Do you think he'll be Prime Minister? I don't know. It's just so extraordinary. Yeah, we're back to what you just said a minute ago about I, honestly, red hot pokers. I don't know. No, Who on well, nobody earth knows. Can tell? But well, I mean, yeah, the you're right. Might you'd be to have a prediction any day, mightn't it? Or it might stumble on. We've for... been, we've been, we've been. I've had our phones off for now. The government might have collapsed. We'll, have, we'll only find <laughs> out. We'll only find out in four minutes' time. So the the, the 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 phrase you've used to describe the new show: a miserable period in his life when Donald Trump won the White House. Nigel Farage seemed to be running Britain, and to cheer him up, his wife decided to leave him. Are you making light of serious? <laughs> <laughs> Serious stuff there. <laughs> Nothing for use off limits. It's all everything is. Yeah, I think you, you know. Yeah, because it's if you care about something, you ought to be able to make it funny. It seems to me. You know, there's a someone will ask a comedian, oh, but you do things about quite serious subjects. Do you think, well, what should comedy just be about lollipops then and <laughs> the shape of a lettuce? I was I mean, thinking what, more about you splitting up with your wife isn't necessarily something that everyone would joke about. I can see that there's, I think most comics would, would yeah, you're find, probably right. You have to, don't you? Would, yeah, therapy. yeah, you'd find you find things that are funny about it. It's not, I'm not rude about her, I hope not in any no. way. In any way, that's I think that'd be very nice. But to go to this thing called mediation, that is, you can't help but laugh like that media is exactly exactly like you would imagine someone called a mediator would be this isn't to get you back together this is to sort out all the right. the, the shenanigans of the house and all that and exactly woman like this lovely that you could come okay marvelous 
Resolution <laughs> is better than conflict, isn't it? <laughs> oh, God, man, no, please. You have to do it. <laughs> um, we're almost done, but we jumped early because we, we started with the adoption and the, something else we had in common. You tracked your biological mother down. Yes! Ultimately. Yes! But it, it, it it's not it's not got a kind of... Well, it's got a sort of happy ending. Yeah. Because I tracked her down. One half of this story is not a happy ending. Right. She had no interest. How did that feel, mate? Well, I... I was a bit cross, but I wasn't sort of deeply upset and hurt and so on. Oh, I've been rejected because I didn't know her and it was just, blimey. I was cross because I thought, I've bloody... You're always warned, aren't you, that this could happen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I've gone to a lot of trouble to find her and I thought, you could at least have bloody given me the time of day or sent me a... You know, I think I was saying in the show, if someone come round my house for any reason (laughs) and said, oh, Mr. Steele, I've been six months trying to find you, I'm compiling a list of all everybody in the area in alphabetical order. (laughs) Don't know why. I'm a cup of tea. Anyway, I'll say, oh, I don't know why you've done that, mate, but... I thought I'd start with the S's. Don't know why I did that. I said, like, come in, mate. I'll put the kettle on. I think you're around the twist, but there you are. But, but manners. To, to, yeah, manners, yeah. exactly. Rude. But this is a strange thing. There was a, a very lovely woman who did the sort of chasing up on my behalf. This is the way it's done, whether mm. that's right or not, I don't know. But she was very, very good at tracing her to Rimini in Italy. Mm. And this one, very efficient. Uh, right, so what are we going to do, Mark? I'm going to contact her tomorrow. And then, uh, so she had a, because we sent a letter and nothing came back. So, well, I've got a phone number, a little flat there, a little apartment, Rimini in Italy. I'm going to get in touch with her and contact. And uh, I'm really going to give her a little bit of a whatnot and say, you know, come on, you really ought to sort of come and respond in some sort of way. And, uh, and I'll give you a call back tomorrow, Mark, okay? So she did that and then she rang me back and she said it was, she doesn't want to know. But she said it was the most extraordinary conversation, she said, because Francis said, I'd do all I could to keep her on the phone. And then Francis all of a sudden said, I want to ask three questions, like some sort of Indiana Jones type sort of scenario. And the first question, what does he do for a living? I said, well, he's a comedian. Second question, does he have children of his own? I said, he does. He has a son and he has a daughter. She said, then Marky asked a third question. She asked a third question, and in all the many years I've been performing this role, I have not once ever heard anybody suggest such a conundrum as the one that she then posed. She said, what are his politics? Isn't that extraordinary? Yeah. And I don't know what on earth must that must have been about, you know. But And she said, and then, while I was in digesting this, she said... Before I put the phone down, let me tell you who the father is. And I said in the show, I just thought he was just some random French bloke in the night. You know, uh, what is your name? Francis, my favourite of the names. Maybe you'd like to accompany me to the bus shelter. <laughs> Francis. But I said, OK, what, what, what name? And she said this name. And this bloke was the 1976 World Backgammon Champion who then invested his money into Wall Street and become a multi, multi, multi millionaire. He owns property all over the world. But even that isn't the start of it because he was at the heart of a particular section of society in the 70s called the Claremont Club. Right. Because the Claremont Club was the backgammon club where this character made his... Like yeah. made lots of money. Now, I don't know what his own personal opinions were, but he was part of this group 
that included, oh no, revolved around James Goldsmith, Jim Slater, Tiny Rowlands, John Aspinall, who ran the Claremont Club, and then later Kerry Packer, all of which were the very characters in the 1970s whose completely rampant greed... Disaster capitalism. Disaster capitalism. Always involved in various sort of stuff that went on that was in the news and slate of water controversies. Asset stripping. Asset stripping. All of that. The very people that in the 1970s I used to watch on the news that made me be sort of an angry socialist in in the first place. He was their mate. He was more than their mate. He was a... He worked alongside them, set up all sorts of financial... I don't want to say institutions, but work. I mean, with Kerry Packer, <clears throat> he worked with him immensely closely. He was his sort of, it was his right hand yeah. man around the world in all sorts of ways. And one way or another, I managed to contact him, and we met up. And the really odd thing is, we really got on. I really, I thought I really like him. He's funny. He was very Jewish, yeah. and I just thought, what you know, I, I don't know. There's something very. Very funny about him. We only met the once. We've not. I quite. I would like to meet him again. He was living in Los, in, half in Los Angeles and half in Switzerland, which I guess was for tax reasons. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Immensely, ridiculously wealthy. You know, been mate of the George Bush's yeah, yeah. family and also I wow. think he's probably a Democrat. I guess as a sort of millionaire Jewish character sure. in in, uh, uh, in those worlds. But there you go. What do you do with that? What do you do with that know. information? And, of course, one character I haven't mentioned who he was very, very close to. I know where we're going. Lord Lucan. Of course. And I... Think he knows? Yeah. And I... I, Seriously? Yeah, he must do. And I said to... uh, uh, I had a mate who, the next day I was telling this to, I told him all of this. Guess what I've just found out? And my, this is why this bloke who I said this to will always be such a good mate for this reason. <laughs> he said to me exactly the right thing a mate should say in them circumstances. He went, well, it'll be easy to find your dad now. All you've got to do is find Lord Lucan and you've got him. What's <laughs> <I'm not> still <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. That was bang on. Oh, I did enjoy that, especially the stuff about his biological father, Lord Lucan, who, of course, famously disappeared after the murder of his children's nanny, remains one of the great mysteries of our time. So to see Mark there, just sort of nodding gnomically when I asked whether he thinks his biological father might know what happened to Lord Lucan was was actually quite spine-tingling. If you have enjoyed this episode of Unfiltered, then why not check out the Russell Brand one? He got a mention with Mark, and uh, I think you'll enjoy that as well. Have a listen to this. I mean, when you were in your kind of in your pomp uh, of promiscuity, did you treat people badly? Inadvertently, yes, I did, because I don't think that there's a way of having a sort of a perspective of people as a sort of things that can make you feel better. That's positive. Fortunately, I am a gentle person. Fortunately, I am a romantic person. Fortunately, I am based not on domination, but on sort of yearning. Yearning is what drives me, a need to be loved, a need to be adored, a need to be connected. Having said that, I am, when in my addiction, selfish. 
So do go back and check that out, along with the rest of the back catalogue. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe to Unfiltered. You can leave a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you know someone who might like Unfiltered, then do introduce them to it. You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien, brought to you by Joe.